you've joined the Betamax Video Club, rewinding back to our favourite films of the 1980s. My name's Rich Nelson, and today I've rented Flashdance. Watching it with me is James King, a film critic and author of the book Fast Times and Excellent Adventures. Hi James, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Did you enjoy watching Flashdance? I did. It was the first <laughs> it was the first time I'd ever seen it, and you know what? It was something that I had always put off and I came to it and I really enjoyed it and I can see why a lot of people love the film. Yeah, it's interesting that that you're watching it in in 2018 because it now, you know, it's 35 years old. It's an old movie. Mm. And for many, it's like the arc, one of the archetypal 80s films because there are so many things that I'm sure we're going to talk about that are so 80s about it. But if you're watching it now, you've never seen it before and it still stands up, then that's a good sign. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's strange because for, from 1983 and, and one of the first things I noticed was, you know, even the opening credits where it was very similar to Rocky in the the big letters at the beginning. It's set in Pennsylvania. There's a lot of photography around the, the construction industry. And this is where Alex's day job as a welder comes in. But it was so... You know, looking back, it's it's aged in in the way that the music, the soundtrack is so quintessentially eighties, and yet a part of it still seems to stand up today. It's um, ultimately a story of a person, a young person who has ambitions, but she has to pay the bills. And but her evening dancing, the whole flash dance, is such a completely novel situation. But it's very different from even the dance films of shortly before sort of Saturday Night Fever. Now you covered a lot of that in your book and how times have changed but was that something that you enjoyed going back to? Oh yeah yeah I mean the the idea of the 80s soundtrack that, that we know so well is so synonymous with with the big 80s movies that we love whether that's Top Gun or Back to the Future or Dirty Dancing or whatever that you really see the origins of that in Flashdance and music that, that moved on slightly from certainly from classic musicals because this is not about people breaking out into song and dance like they did in West Side Story or even in Greece just a few years earlier. It's actually just music that that's not <laughs> that's not really there for any other point apart from just to sound good and so that there can be some good choreography and some good kind of music video moments in there. Um, so the the way that music was used in in a lot of 80s films, and certainly Flashdance is one of those early examples, uh, was very different because all of a sudden, and actually following on from Saturday Night Fever, it became about shifting the soundtrack. It became about looking for other ways to make money. It wasn't just about selling tickets to the film anymore. It was also about making money off the album. And Flashdance did that. I mean, Flashdance was an absolutely huge album alongside the movie being number one at the box office. And it's strange that this was around the time that MTV was launching and and the fact that you could market a film via the music as well as the other way around. It yeah. really changed the game. Oh, totally. And I think um, the, 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 the producers of, of Flashdance, um, Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, amongst others, you know, they were aware of that. They're smart guys. They were looking for ways to, to sell their film that at that time weren't traditional, um, looking at ways to get it to a young audience. And of course, young audiences were lapping up MTV at the time. Um, and so a lot of the, the, the sequences in Flashdance play like music videos actually they're just you know especially the dance sequences obviously you know they they run for almost the entire song and you could just chop them out of the film and play them on mtv like a music video um and mtv which itself was struggling a little bit at the start actually benefited from flash dance being so big you know it wasn't all about flash dance 
um, reaping the rewards. Actually, MTV got did really well out of Flashdance too because the music was so popular and the videos were so popular. And MTV started to get um, bought in and, and, and taken on by lots of different areas across America. You know, it started out only in a few cities, but then it spread across America and became this huge national thing. So by the time of other movies like Footloose, which was a year later, MTV was the go-to place to market your film if you had a teen movie. Absolutely. And it's funny that this movie's so closely tied into Footloose. I know that they made, they remade Footloose a few years ago and that was something that I saw that before the remake because I went to a test screening back when I was a bit poor. And it was one of these <laughs> things that... And Flashdance came up as a question at the end in the focus group saying, would you be interested in seeing a remake of that? And honestly, I had to say I hadn't seen it. And my opinion of Footloose was, well, it's no diehard. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's strange how those two films films are so sort of closely married together and yet you know they're films essentially about dancing and yet this film was you know even coming back you know I'm nearly 40 looking and thinking some of the scenes in there were quite sexual in in their way I mean even the the club where she dances it's not a strip club and and it's it's very much like a burlesque in a strange way but um you know some of the scenes there's a lot of close-ups of sweaty flesh and everything which is very much a polar opposite of footloose about being in a repressed church town yeah i mean splash dance is is a lot more stylish Uh, Mm. the director adrian lyon is is known for his style Mm. Um, a commercials director british commercials director in the 70s who, you know, of course, had huge success with, with Fatal Attraction and Nine and a Half Weeks and other movies in the 80s. Um, whereas Herbert Ross, who directed Footloose, you know, a, a Broadway director, a musicals director, a fine director, but didn't quite have that same visual style that Adrian Lyne and, and the people that Adrian Lyne worked with had. So there, there definitely is that difference. And in any Adrian Lyne movie, really... There's always something sexual. I mean, some of his films are actually about sex, like yeah. Nine and a Half Weeks. But um, Flashdance isn't. But they, it, like you said, it has a, it has a, a, a heated, steamy, sensual atmosphere going throughout the film, running throughout the film. Um, that something like Footloose just doesn't have. It plays it a lot more safe. Yeah, and and even the the sensual atmosphere. A lot of it is it's about the dancing. Of course, like a lot of these films, there is a relationship or put it mildly a love story where Alex and the boss of her construction company who is about twice her age I think I've made a note of yeah yeah it's like a father figure really (laughs) yeah it's strange because he talks about being divorced and, and everything else and she's this young girl who lives on her own and I know there was some background to the the writing or the screenplay that some of the initial drafts had mentioned that she'd been sort of abused as a child or something else which is why she lives alone and and seems to just have a I didn't get the relationship with the old lady was like a fairy godmother almost yeah I think she was just uh, an inspiration Mm. um, presumably a family friend who had introduced her to ballet when she was younger and and constantly inspired her and, and encouraged her to take up ballet more seriously but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think the there are a couple of things with the love story that, that I was reminded of watching uh, Flashdance again recently. And I think one is uh, of the love story in Top Gun, which, of course, is another Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer movie from a couple of years later, where actually the, the love story seems pretty much in the background. Mm. I think in Top Gun, it's even less important. It's about the aeroplanes. But in Flashdance... <laughs> 
it's about the dancing and it's about the sexiness and it's about the lifestyle that she leads. And although there is this love story and it does have some ups and downs, it doesn't really keep you on the edge of your seat. And I think that's certainly something that was repeated with with even greater success uh, in Top Gun. It's style over content. And I think the other thing that I was reminded of was the um, the relationship between Baby and Johnny in Dirty Dancing, mm. which is not quite as, as made to December as it is in, in Flashdance. But, you know, she's like 16 years old, 15, 16 years old in that movie. And Johnny Castle, played by Patrick Swayze, is considerably older. And there was debate at the time of that about whether it was right, whether it felt okay. And I think certainly when you watch Flashdance, I don't know about the time, because I didn't watch it at the time, but I think when you watch it now, seeing someone who is about mid-30s um, who uh, seduce a girl of 18 um, it does feel a little uncomfortable um, and uh, I'm not quite sure what what they had in common I can I mean they're both very attractive but in terms of that I'm not really sure what they would talk about because uh, they do seem a bit of an odd couple because in in some ways she comes across as also Alex comes across as almost naive in some of her ways she she's very idealistic about what she wants to do and yet when she gets together with Nick, who's the the boss, she can be quite aggressive and forward with him in a way that almost belies her age. And I think that's part of, to me anyways, why her character is so so outstanding and that she has a bit of both sides to her. And as someone who's what, 18 in this film, to really challenge this 36-year-old, and, and she isn't just eye candy that his ex-wife kind of implies when they bump into her, but she's actually yeah. a, a peer and, a, and an equal in some ways. Yeah, I mean, she's she's a rebel, isn't she? She's, she's doing things her own way and is fiercely independent. Um, again, it's a streak that you see in other... Simpson and Bruckheimer movies. I mean, Maverick in Top Gun is called Maverick. <laughs> it's pretty. They make it pretty blunt. He is a Maverick. Um, Axel Foley in Beverly Hills Cop just does things his own way. Doesn't want to play by the rules. Doesn't want to do things traditionally. Which is very much like Alex. You know, she 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 is dancing in questionable clubs very artistically but not the kind of thing that you would expect someone who then wants to go onto a posh ballet school to do so you know she's doing things her own way she's doing things in a slightly maverick and unconventional way and i think that actually the the filmmakers certainly simpson and Bruckheimer, would have seen themselves like that i think that's why they made a lot of these films um um about characters like that because they saw themselves as mavericks in hollywood you know they were a new style of producer so actually becoming much more successful than the older producers, people twice their age, and doing it their own way and creating their own kind of style. So I think that's what attracted them to characters like Alex or Axel Foley or Maverick because they saw themselves in those people. I guess that's a good way of writing is seeing it as both experience and, and a bit of ambition. And part of the, the scene where Alex goes to the ballet school to to get the forms to do the audition, it's... I know it got parodied in, I think it was an episode of Friends where Joey turned up, at, um, everyone was ballet, <laughs> doing these stretches and and uh, Alex turns up in basically welding gear with a hard hat on her bike. You know, it's, it's a bit of a cliche in the way that she ran out embarrassed, but the fact that it shows that she's a little bit aware of there is a social element to this where she has to kind of navigate that almost as well and, and the part where... 
the boss of the construction firm is also on the council that has some influence and, say, spoiler alert, almost pulls in a favour to get her the audition at the end. And that yeah, really damages yeah. her pride a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. I think there's there's absolutely a, cult, uh, a social clash between Alex, who you know is a worker and is working class, and Nick, who we learn started out like that, but has risen up to become the boss, um, which I think is actually a key thing. It's not like he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He has actually had to work hard to become uh, the boss and to become in charge. So I think that helps us warm to him a little bit rather mm. than if he was just some entitled posh boy. Um, but yeah, I think the I think the, the roughness of Pittsburgh in the 80s, this is part of the Rust Belt in America, you know, it wasn't economically thriving at that point. I think it's very much in the film. Um, it's It looks beautiful because that's the way that, that Adrian Lyne shoots things. But um, it's old warehouses and old train tracks and run-down areas. That's that's the world of Flashdance. Dodgy bars, sleazy strip joints. It's not glamorous at all. It can be shot through beautiful lenses and the cinematographer can light it and make it look stunning. But it's still a kind of grungy stunning. Um, so I think that you're always aware that things in Pittsburgh at this in this era um, weren't going that well. No, and, and this is part of the attraction where it shows the day she works in a factory, which looks a bit of a health and safety nightmare, the way it's been <laughs> <laughs> all backlit, and there's a lot of darkness in the foreground. But um, the fact that the bar that she dances in, it, it seems like almost a very nice community family within this bar despite the fact there is some exotic dancing although there's no stripping no nudity um where the the dancers have a camaraderie and get on and yet just nearby is the very sort of sordid sleazy sex joint where johnny runs that and at some point one of the waitresses from morby's ends up working there and it just shows that there is that sort of fine line between doing an exotic dance and and that sort of environment to the it doesn't take long for her friend to to really fall into that trap when she starts going out with the guy who uh, Nick the boss left behind because he says about how he used to steal hubcaps with him and that was part of what he did growing up in his little rebel streak and yet she you know he he's moved on and upwards and on the art council and his mate is still there running a sex shop trying to recruit girls yeah, I mean, these are people on the breadline, aren't they? They're, mm. they're just one step away from having to work in a sex club. I mean, it's, Alex can be as artistic and creative as she wants when she's dancing. And it is, you know, incredibly creative what she does and the choreography. But it's if it doesn't work out, then she hasn't really got a backup plan. So um, I think there's, there's an earthiness and a roughness to the movie and some of the language as well that actually just gives it a little bit more than if it was all pretty and, and we you know people often tend to think of flash dance as kind of feel good and pretty and fun and hey it's all about you know singing in your hairbrush to irene cara and there is that element but and this goes back to what you said about rocky actually it's gritty too there is there there are some guts there and we are never allowed to forget that these people are hard up and and the fact that you know, in, in Rocky, the character has a, a day job almost as a sort of low-level collector for a sort of loan shark. And here, Alex, while working as a welder in a construction site, there's still that sort of gritty side of things where she does something to, to try and escape and, 
as part of her ambition. And, and while there isn't the element of luck that Rocky had, for example, you know, it still leans on it quite heavily. But it's it's good that it doesn't feel token at all. I mean, while it is, I suppose, slightly unusual that there'd be a 18-year-old girl working as a welder and weirdly I, I mentioned it on Twitter quite recently and someone said well she's an awful welder and started going into the technicalities of how her flame was too hot and everything else I mean I don't know what training she's done but I suppose it, it, people on Twitter just like to pick at stuff but um, going on you see about how she really does have this sort of steel within her she goes back to her very I suppose now it would be looked at as a luxurious former warehouse property with um, the dog, which looked like a, a very loyal best friend, uh, like to sit there and watch. But, um, you know, she'd go and practice and practice and work and, and do her best to, to better herself. And it, it just seemed like a very, that sort of era where films were trying to sort of show people that working hard was a good thing. And I know you mentioned in, in your book that a couple of mentions of the sort of Reagan era America where people are encouraged to, to work themselves better. Yeah, and follow your dreams, which is, mm. you know, is mentioned um, in the movie, you know, um, and even take your passion and make it happen, the line from the song. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, they're almost like advertising slogans, aren't they? Yeah. Um, which, which kind of makes sense from, from Adrian Lyne's advertising background. But uh, it is about following your dreams and about never giving up on your dreams. And now perhaps that's been reduced more to X Factor and Britain's Got Talent. But um, at the time on the big screen, I think that was something rather optimistic. You look at a lot of movies from the 70s, um, they are much tougher, even mm. if it's Saturday Night Fever, that's much more downbeat. Um, and of course, the, the you know the, the famous films from the seventies, like Mean Streets and The Godfather, and things like that. You know, they're they're not exactly optimistic, feel good movies. And I think with Flashdance, although, like I said, it has that that earthiness to it and that roughness. Ultimately, there is a positivity there, just as there is in in Footloose, uh, just as there is in Dirty Dancing, um, whereby you can have it all. Um, and uh, if you do just knuckle down and get on with things and dream big and follow those dreams, then the era that we're in, the Reaganite era, the yuppie era, might actually reward you, and you might um, you might find yourself actually in the place you've always dreamed of being. So um, I can totally understand why people went nuts for this film in 1983, huge hit in 1983, because it is, it's a film about feelings, really. There's not a lot of plots. There's not even that much dialogue, to be honest. It's a film about gut instinct. And when you watch it, you it, it stirs up your feelings to think, you know, I can do that. I can follow my passion. I can take my passion and make it happen, just like Alex. It's funny that, you know, and I know we talked about the soundtrack, but that song, you know, What a Feeling, is just so iconic. And, and there are several other songs that go throughout the film. But to have something so overt and, and even... You know the opening scene to go back. You know one of the, that was the real iconic part of the film where um, Alex is dancing and empties the the water on herself while she's <laughs> on the chair and and you kind of think like you know without having seen the film you know I, I knew of that scene and the fact that it's been ripped off to death but it, it was quite ballsy having that at the beginning and the fact that it opens on that and then it still brings you back to these music videos that you talked about before where it has uh, Maniac and Manhunt and everything that goes throughout the film. You can imagine if you're in a movie theatre watching that for the first time and it just kind of lifts you up every so often. It's almost like a pep talk. Just You've got to a film, you've got through a, 
if there's a particularly heavy bit or where things have gone a little bit wrong there's always a song there just to to get you back up there must have been some crazy dancing going on in the aisles there <laughs> yeah I, I think it's i think balls is a very good word for it i think that that the the ads directors who came through in the late 70s and 80s adrian line being one of them but also ridley scott his brother tony scott uh, alan parker amongst others you know english british directors who went to Hollywood and made it big with with these very stylish movies. Um, I think because they had come from advertising, they knew how to grab our attention in a minute or two minutes uh, because that's what advertising was. A TV ad was trying to sell you something. It had to be memorable. It had to stick in your head. And you had a short amount of time to um, be very bold. So that bold opening that you're talking about in Flashdance you know, it's it's not selling anything specific like, hey, a deodorant or a perfume or something like that. But it's selling you uh, a lifestyle and it's selling you this character. And what what Adrian Lyne, uh, I think, said after Flashdance, which is very interesting, is that he would walk around the streets, you know, New York and see people dressed like Alex in mm. the, the sort of the slouchy uh, sweat top and leggings and that kind of look which was you know people i'm sure know was a very big look in, in the early 80s um so he had sold her really he had sold her lifestyle to everybody who went to see that movie uh, people wanted to ride around on their bikes they wanted to go ice skating they wanted to um, be ballet dancers you know do the things that she did it sold her lifestyle as something very attractive and that's one another thing that got ripped off in Friends was the scene where she's in her sweatshirt and high heels, taking off her bra underneath, and <laughs> trying try to convince Nick that he's she said, "Don't you want pizza?" And he's just staring at her like he's <laughs> pizza's the last thing on his mind. <laughs> See, moments like that have never happened to me. You know, you watch these films and you go, "This is such a movie moment. This is I not know. reality." He's just staring. Couldn't make it any more obvious. Um, but it's funny, like when we talked about advertising, because one one of the other films that you mentioned in your book, which is a film I did a podcast about um, early this year, was Absolute Beginners, and yeah. that that was written by someone with music video background, and that there were some massive similarities between these Flashdance and that, where there seemed to be musical set pieces, and whereas this nailed it absolutely 100% and absolute beginners was a huge misstep for a number of reasons but um, you know th this you could sort of just walk away and the fact that the songs were you know even now you hear them on the radio you think yes flash dance and all very feel good and it just it seemed to it's one of those films that you can look back with maybe the, the benefit of hindsight and experience and think yeah it absolutely nailed it yeah and that's what Don Simpson and Jerry Brookhyde were very good at doing um it's it's actually nailing the story and getting it clear cut and knowing who your audience is and ticking the boxes and hitting the beats um and but doing that with style what's interesting about i think um absolute beginners is that you know julian temple was a like you said a music video director and worked in that world and wanted to make it very stylish just as adrian line wanted to make flash dance very stylish but I think with Flashdance, the, the different factors, the different people working on it, the writer, the producers, they all kind of worked very well together because they would make it arty to a certain degree, but then they'd also remember commerce as well. They'd also remember that they had to sell this and make it mainstream and make it approachable. Um, and you look at something like Absolute Beginners and it's just someone who goes a bit too far and I think forgets about the mainstream teenage audience and goes off into his sort of private <laughs> fantasy world, which is quite stunning, but it's not commercial at all. 
Um, whereas flash dance, it's a really good balance. And again, with Top Gun as well, you know, this really good balance of actually high art, very highly stylized, but never forgetting that the simple story and the music and the approachable characters are actually what puts bums on seats. What people want to see is airplanes and flash dancing and not, not stories about uh, gentrification and f- race riots from the 50s, I suppose. It, it, exactly, <laughs> you know, and that's not, you know, I, 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 I like Absolute Beginners. I think it's a really interesting movie, but inter- it's, it wasn't a surprise to me that that film was a flop, whereas Flash Dance was a huge hit. Yeah. You know, you can see why one works and why one doesn't. One thing that we did sort of touch on before was um, Nick, the the manager boyfriend, um, when his ex-wife turns up when he goes out for dinner with Alex, because we've had an issue already where Alex has gone to the ballet and and sees Nick with another woman who we learn is his ex-wife and she has a bit of a moment and goes and smashes his window. And they go for this very nice dinner and, and that where she's wearing a tuxedo and playing footsie with him and is just so sexually aggressive you know and the <laughs> fact that the the film shows her foot in his groin it's quite i don't know acting maybe but um <laughs> it, it, i was very shocked when i first saw that when i when i saw it when i was much much younger and the way she sort of erotically eats the lobster <laughs> um you know it is and it it actually flashes forward i think to um what Adrian Lyne then did in Nine and a Half Weeks, which is full of moments like that, involving food and sex and yeah. women dressing up. You know, Kane Bassinger in that movie dresses up like a guy at one point uh, in a sort of suit. Um, so I think you, you 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 sort of see that the early ideas, Adrian Lyne's early ideas that we'll then see again in Nine and a Half Weeks. But um, yeah, I mean, it is. It, you mentioned that she, there are naive moments that she has because she is only 18 years old and she's inexperienced in life in many ways. But I think it's impressive, actually, that she also has that confidence when it comes to things like sex in the movie. Um, she is she's an inspiration. I don't think it's the greatest performance in the world. And Jennifer Beals would probably say it wasn't the greatest performance in the world. She was very young and inexperienced when she did it. She was sort of plucked from obscurity, really, to play that. So um, I don't think that, that her acting is sort of, you know, Oscar worthy. But at the same time, uh, I think as a character, she is fascinating because she has... Uh, that confidence about her and you can understand why young girls would look up to her and think wow she's you know she's really strong and she doesn't take any shit from people it's not massively plugged you know a lot of films would have based on a true story built within the the tagline or something like that but this was based on a true story around toronto i think it was wasn't it yeah 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 tom headley who was the the writer and uh, you know written the piece about it uh, as well as journalist, um, and yeah, had been to these bars, you know, where it wasn't stripping, it was more artistic, more exotic dancing, and, and actually found out that some of these girls who had very unusual uh, or unexpected daytime jobs, like working in construction and things like that. So yeah, it was, and actually there's a scene in it, I think it's when the Donna Summer song is playing, where Alex is in this sort of Japanese kabuki makeup, you know, and that's something that was directly that Tom Headley had directly seen when he was in Toronto, that that kind of style. So there's a lot of truthfulness in it. Obviously, the the, the romance is, a, is an add-on. But yeah, it, it was it was based on a true story, but it's not um, shoved down your throat. And also, you know, Alex's ethnicity isn't either. She's mixed race, yeah. but it's 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 never even commented on. We can see it. Uh, so what we have actually is you know a, a romance that's not just across 
class divides, if you like, but it's also across racial divides. But I think that Simpson and Bruckheimer were very smart not to play up to that and just say, you know what, this is the 80s, you can have what you want, you can be what you want, um, and just get on with it. And you look at Beverly Hills Cop as well, which obviously had a black actor in the leading role, Liddy Murphy. You know, it's there, there's some a few quips in there, but it's not uh, about race, that movie. It is more about class, but it's not about race. Uh, I think it was very smart of them not to, 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 to kind of be open-minded enough to say, we're not going to make a big deal about this because we, we want people just to accept it as normal. Jennifer Bills came from, from nowhere, and, and a lot of films or a lot of actors in films around this time, if they did have any sort of diversity, it might have been plugged a little bit more. It might have, More might have been made of it, whether it was a race thing or a, a disability, which is obviously a lot rarer. But her as an actress, she came out of nowhere for this film but then I wouldn't say disappeared but she she went back to study didn't she she didn't yeah carry on she didn't sort of go straight into the next film the next film she there were some quotes that she felt quite uncomfortable by the the sudden stardom yeah and um many people were probably surprised at that because uh, again, talking about the the mood of the era, it wasn't really an era of shrinking violence. People were much more brassy about things and and very happy to be uh, famous, uh, as I suppose they still are today. Uh, but the eighties wasn't known for people going, you know what, I'm going to shun the spotlight and go back to university. But that's exactly what she did um, because she was just and she was about to go to university. I think when she got the role, so you know um, she just did the movie, the movie was a huge success, and then picked up uh, where she'd left off um, and was fascinated by uh, English literature, I think is what she studied, and fascinated by storytelling. And I think doing that degree, this is similar to Jodie Foster as well, who's actually friends with Jennifer Beals. Um, they both took time out from being in the spotlight and being leading ladies to, to go back to university. And I think both of them would say that it actually helped them then when they came back and became directors, actors, uh, again, that they had more to them because they understood more and they'd learned more and they'd studied more. So um, it was it was a surprising thing, I think, certainly for <laughs> probably for Jennifer Beale's agent. But um, it ultimately, I think uh, it helped and helped her longevity because, OK, she's not sort of uh, Julia Roberts now, but, you know, she's still working and still uh, out, very much out there, still very much active. And sometimes, you know, it's nice to, to have that one iconic role and the fact if she's still working now and still acting and doing something that she obviously loves. I suppose without being in that boat myself, it's easy to say, but it must be nice to be, yeah, that was me in Flashdance. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it, it was a huge hit. People loved her in it. She looks great in it. Uh, you know, it's an achievement. I don't think it's something she's embarrassed about. Well, I know it's not because I've heard her, her talk about it. Um, and uh, initially, maybe she did want to hide away from the spotlight and hide away from the fame. But I think now, all these years later, uh, and you see this with a lot of, of 80s actors, actually, who had their moment in that era when they were young and then perhaps have, 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 have fallen off the radar a little bit. I think that actually now, you know, 30, 35 years later, they accept it. They accept that, that and, and are happy that they had a movie or several movies that were part of childhoods, that were part of people's adolescence. Uh, not many people can say that. That's an achievement. No, although we're still living in a time where Tom Cruise continues to go from strength to strength. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he's you know he's the exception, isn't he? And yeah. uh, uh, the interesting thing about him, I think, is that uh, uh, you know certainly when I was writing the book and speaking to people about him, 
that just that they in a way everybody who works with them from very much the early 80s in his first films they could see it even then they could see that, that unlike Jennifer Beals this was a guy who relished the spotlight who relished the challenge um, and was so determined and so focused that in a way he could only ever end up as you know, the A-list's leading man of the era uh, because that was his just you know utter determined and focused streak in him. And here we are probably only a few months away from Top Gun too. I do wonder if uh, there's ever been a temptation to go back and do a flash dance too. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. And we mentioned Footloose earlier. Of course, there was a remake of that, but there was never a direct sequel. Um, I'm glad there wasn't. I think today that it would be different. Um, and you only have to look at the things that were obviously heavily influenced by Flashdance in the late '90s, early noughties, Things like Save the Last Dance and Step Up. They did have lots of sequels. So I'm sure um, if it were a hit now, then there would be sequels. But I think. Although we tend to think of the 80s as the beginning of the franchise era and the sequels era, there are still plenty of movies out there uh, that don't have sequels, whether that is Ferris Bueller's Day Off or uh, Flashdance or Footloose or, for a long time, Top Gun. I mean, we're only only having one all these years later. So um, I'm personally pleased that there wasn't. I don't feel that... I, I love the film, but I don't feel the need to find out anything more. I'm very happy when films just end and they exist as sort of a time capsule and we don't have to keep going with the story. Yeah, and I guess as you say, because the film is so heavily influenced and lent on by music and and that very much dates it in its way that would make things impossible without completely reinventing it and unless they came back in some sort of flash dance where it's leaning on grime music or something similar, it would be a very different film. Yeah, I mean, I suppose suppose with Flashdance, they've kind of remade it in, in every sense but name um, yeah. because Save the Last Dance is a bit like it, Step Up is a bit like it they certainly play on those clashes between um, the ballet and street dancing um, and they certainly play on clashes between the sort of the, the middle class and the working class um, and even something like Coyote Ugly which was mm. a, a Jerry Bruckheimer production, Don Simpson was no longer around unfortunately when that came out but you know that's about uh, a sort of quiet, shy girl who has dreams of performing, but ends up working in a bar and, and <laughs> instead on the on the way to actually finding um, finding her feet. So it's definitely influenced by Flashdance. So not direct remakes, not direct sequels, but you can see Flashdance in those films. Yeah, and and going back to the film, um, by the time Alex has got the confidence, having spoken to Nana, uh, well, Hannah <laughs> it's very similar to Nana um, yeah. to get to get the, the confidence to go and get the audition form Nick because he's the he's on the arts council he goes in helps her out gets the favour she does initially have that that rant at him because she finds out that she's only or she thinks she's only got the audition because he's made the phone call um, and it shows that he has to convince her that while he may have or may have helped to get the audition and got that foot on the ladder, it's still up to her, essentially, in, in another iconic scene at the end, to turn up on her own. There's no sort of help at all, just her and a record, to go in and actually wow these people who we're supposed to assume are very snooty snobs who aren't going to recognise any sort of street dancing or anything modern, and we're talking 80s modern here. And yet she goes in and uh, gets them to start rocking their feet and 
tap the, <laughs> tap the toes and all that. It looks, uh, it's a pretty special ending. Yeah, so many of them are smoking as well, aren't they? You just, yeah. <laughs> wow, you're like athletes, really. You're professional dancers. I'm sure fagging away like that isn't a good idea. Mm. Um, but yeah, it is an iconic ending. I think just before that, that speech by Nick that you mentioned is great. Uh, it's basically telling her that he thinks she's afraid and that's why, you know, which, and we kind of know that, that she is afraid of, of actually um, taking the, facing up to the challenge and, 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 and seeing if she is good enough. And that really motivates her. And so it's, yeah, it's, um, I think the fact that he, that he got her the audition, if you want to look at it sort of morally, then I suppose what that says of the era is that, yeah, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And we shouldn't be afraid to, to like get a leg up from, from um, a relative or a friend if we can. But ultimately, it's still, like you said, down to you. It's down to the individual. And although she got that audition, she still had to be brilliant in the final audition to then get into the school itself. So it was ultimately down to her. Um, but yeah, I mean, the final scene is, is I, you can watch uh, Jerry Halliwell, It's Raining Men video, it's like that. Or there's a Jennifer Lopez music video that riffs mm. on it as well. Um, so it's, it's just become a whole thing in its own right. And I suppose also a bit of a, talking point because of the body doubles and people i'm sure know that that one of the body doubles was a guy actually crazy legs so you can there are kind of moments <laughs> where you can spot a slightly more muscly physique uh that jennifer beals had um but i uh, you know watching it again I, I still think it works and i still think that that yes you can spot the the, the joins a little bit but i think it's a, a really well edited and shot sequence and very simple look it's just one person dancing in front of a group of of invigilators and she has to win them over but uh, you're really invested in it by that point yeah and, and like you touched on earlier it is a bit like x factor where you walk into a room and there are people there sort of in, in big chairs but it does also show a fallibility in the fact that she still has enough confidence after starting the routine to turn around and say right i'm, I'm going to start again this isn't yeah. just a perfect perfect from a to b this you know she does have to go through and sit down and go right i'm starting again but she absolutely blows their socks off and my, yeah. mine as well to be honest. <laughs> yeah it's about working hard isn't it you know and and uh, dusting yourself down and, and getting up and starting over again if you have to um, so it, the, the whole film really is about working hard and uh, that's I, you know I think that's another reason why I like the film and it's, no, it's not obvious perhaps it's not the thing that a lot of people most remember about it but actually you know when you see it several times that really comes through that it's a film about if you work hard and if you really put the hours in and if you really put the dedication in then you will get somewhere um it's certainly very much the opposite of, of people just being handed stuff on a plate it's really not about that at all and as she leaves the audition the nick and the dog are waiting for her afterwards by a porsche now, yes. we can only assume that she got it. Yes, she seems very happy, doesn't she? <laughs> um, and actually, I mean, he's he's sort of ready and prepared with a bunch of roses and things. So um, I wouldn't like to suggest that he knew she was going to get it because we've already been down that path before earlier in yeah. the movie. But he obviously was pretty confident that she would get it. Yeah, yeah the uh, Porsches are interesting. Just a little aside, but, you know, I, I, I think I wrote about Porsches a bit in the book because obviously Risky Business is probably the most famous use of a Porsche in, in an 80s teen movie. But there's also one in License to Drive as well, the Corey um, Avon Feldman movie. Yeah. Um, and the, the Porsche really was the, the epitome of the, the 80s yuppie if you had one of them, that's what you worked for, really. That's what you aimed towards. 
Um, if you were a, if you were a, a rich yuppie in eighties America in eighties Hollywood, then that character would be driving a Porsche. Because you compare that to Johnny when he was talking at the beginning of the film about sort of um, offering the girls a ride and talking about his car, and then you've got Nick with this refined Porsche at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- this is what you have to work for. But... Yeah, yeah. He is quite refined, isn't he? Although he's presumably that in construction, and you know he wanders around. Uh, a building site in a hard hat because of his connections to the art council because of his beautiful house his lovely car you get the sense that he's not just some kind of meathead um he is actually uh uh quite a cultured guy too yeah and even when he brags about how he had to pay 170 dollars to get his window replaced after <laughs> alex broke it and you think oh, 170 dollars now wouldn't get you anything <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> i love the fact that at the end and i'll unashamedly a dog person but the fact that over the course of the film nick and the dog have bonded sufficiently for the t- <laughs> the dog to be there at the end waiting i'd uh yeah, I'd like to see my dog waiting next time I pass a job interview. Well, even with a, uh, a bow around its neck as well. It's, <laughs> it's obviously very sort of placid around it, wasn't yeah. it? Just, yeah, yeah, put a bow around my neck, I don't mind. That's the, that's the real trust there. <laughs> yeah. If you can win over the dog, you can win over the woman. I think that's the message of the film. Yeah, well, that's what I tell people who come to my house. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, James, thank you very much for coming to talk about the film. It's very much a appreciated. Pleasure. And the, the excuse to watch it was uh, invaluable because it's been sat on the DVD shelf downstairs for a number of years. Uh, in there the, you go. It's another one ticked off the list. Yeah, in the, the, funny enough, a double pack with Footloose. So, um, oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, both Paramount films. And I think that there was pretty much a year between them. And I know that um, when the people were working on on Footloose, the the writer and the director, you know, they they obviously were making starting to to make the film when Flashdance was a huge hit. And I think there was a huge sigh of relief that that this kind of music dance led movie was huge because they thought well, we've got one coming out in a year's time, so we can kind of ride on the crest of a wave a little bit. Yeah, I think they are like we said earlier, you know, very different movies, but people do tend to to put them together, not least the DVD people, obviously. <laughs> well, as we mentioned at the start and, and throughout, um, your book, Fast Time and Excellent Adventures. Could you just like to tell everyone a little bit about the book and uh, some of the other stories within? Yeah, well, it's subtitled "The Surprising History of the Eighties Teen Movie," um, and I suppose I was—it's it's surprising is obviously a, a word I chose carefully because I was surprised a lot when I was writing it there have been other books about uh, 80s teen movies I think mine's more historical I I guess more sort of industry based but um, just surprised by a lot of the things that I found out you know um, this sort of relates I suppose a bit to uh, Jennifer Beals that we were talking about but a lot of the actors that you associate with those movies for example weren't particularly keen on them when they made them Uh, weren't particularly keen on the, the image that they had, you know, these were young actors who we think of now as the Brat Pack, for example, or, or um, you know, just kind of young teen stars having a good time. But they took themselves much more seriously and wanted to be working with the best directors and making great works of art. Um, and so uh, one of the surprising things I found out was that 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 feeling of resentment a lot of them had at the time of, of being in these kind of films because they were thinking I'm 20 years old why am I just in some stupid high school movie now all these years later they might be a bit more happy to talk about their their 80s and their their years as teen stars um, but I think at the time I was quite surprised by the resentment that that, that they had um, I was quite surprised by 
the importance of, of British music and British filmmakers on Hollywood. Um, these, are, these are some archetypal American movies we're talking about and I write about, but they would have British directors like Adrian Lyne directing. Uh, they would have British music like, you know, Simple Minds famously on The Breakfast Club or John Hughes chose a lot of British artists, actually, um, outsider kind of bands, new wave bands to appear on his soundtracks. So um, I guess I was just trying to to bring lots of uh, different lots of different influences and, and collect them and try to explain how these movies aren't just about simple nostalgia. And they're not just about the kind of 80s retro shows on the radio that you might hear on a Friday night. You know, they are they do actually actually have lots of different um, influences that are rather interesting and, and, and quite enlightening. And I suppose one of the key people within that period of Molly Ringwald, she's recently hit the news with her essay about her experience of filming The Breakfast Club and yeah. the uncomfortable moments there. So it's still topical in the way that we can look back, albeit with a different pair of eyes, and, and I suppose this comes under the, the whole Me Too movement. But, you know, the experience of making those films wasn't just what we saw on the screen. It was actually made a lot of these actors either sometimes leave the business or certainly change their way of, of acting. And um, the impact they've had, and even now we can look at The Breakfast Club and see you know, that what's happened to the actors since, but also just the, the fact that these people you know, were in some cases 16 and in some cases, I think Judd Nelson was 25 when they made it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And they and I think that their age was very important. Some of them could handle it better than others um, because of the age. You think, well, that's only like six or seven years difference. What difference does that make? But actually, you know, you and I know that the difference between being a 16 year old and being a 24 year old is huge. Um, uh, very much different to being sort of 35 and 45, you know. So, um, uh, it did affect them all differently. Jennifer Beals, going back to Flashdance, was very much concerned about uh, would she have to do nude scenes in this film? You know, would it be exploitative? And I think that it, Adrian Lyne assured her it wouldn't be. And I think he just about got away with it. It's certainly a very, as we said, sensual film, but I don't think it's particularly exploitative on her part. Uh, but others were, weren't so lucky. I mean, there's some awful things that... that um, I found out about and write about, you know, to do with Corey Hayman, Corey Feldman and their experiences as young boys in the movie industry um, in the 80s. And referring to the Molly Ringwald thing, you know, I mean, I, I was keen to not paint John Hughes as a saint. He's the most famous of the teen directors and a teen auteur and a teen hero, certainly to me. But he wasn't perfect. And I spoke to a, he's, his regular collaborator on the, on, on the scores, on the music, Ira Newborn who said, you know, people don't like to hear it. They don't like to hear that he was hard to work with and he wasn't always great. Uh, but that's the truth. And I think Molly Ringwald reiterated that in, in her article. Doesn't mean we have to hate the films. There's still a lot to love about those movies. But I think we can face up to the fact that it was from a different era and there were some uncomfortable things happening then. Uh, that we shouldn't ignore. Well, as uh, as we mentioned, that's all explored in the book, which uh, is available in all good and some bad book places. <laughs> I'll put some links to that on the on the show notes and plug it when because it's a it's a fascinating read because the, you just look at how many you know these aren't just films that were pumped out sort of every six months by studios. There was you know the, the effect it's had on people's lives and in most cases these people are, are still with us and still able to tell the stories and you know the, these aren't the sort of stories that we hear about the on the canon films which i seem to dwell on regularly <laughs> where you know recently i watched 
the Canon Films documentary where Alex Winter is talking about hating working with Michael Winner. Yeah. But but that was more of a personality clash, and, and yet some of these are really quite unpleasant in some cases but uh you know very fascinating tales all all the same well hopefully like i said it's called a surprising history so as long <laughs> as you were surprised a few times then i've done my job yeah very much so <laughs> um well james thank you very much for joining us it was an absolute treat uh, good to speak to you thank you for having me and as per usual i'll uh, play out the podcast with the song that was number one in the uk at the time of the release uh which was baby jane by rod stewart so unfortunately uh, oh well yeah. <laughs> you can't have everything can you? unfortunately not but uh don't worry by the time people get to this there'll have been plenty of flash dance related musical numbers throughout so. <laughs> <laughs> nice one thank you no, so much no thank you james absolute treat cheers is part of Britpod Scene, an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritpodScene.com or BritpodScene on Twitter to find out more.